Hey everyone, I'm Gracie. Welcome to the Grace of a Military Child podcast. The world should know how unique military children are. We may look like normal children on the outside, but we go through some pretty extraordinary circumstances that shape us to the leaders we are today. Keep listening to hear the incredible journey this week's guest has been on. Hi, Boston. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hey, Gracie. I'm good. I'm so good. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Thank you for being on. So start off by telling me a little bit about kind of your history as a military child, which parents served and kind of what it was like growing up military. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the oldest of five um, and I grew up in an Air Force family. So we, uh, yeah, we moved around a lot when I was younger. Um, so that was a lot of the, you know, what I associate with, with kind of being a military child growing up was bouncing around. You know, I was born in Colorado and then we moved to Italy and Phoenix. Um, so a lot of different places in a short amount of time. Um, but my dad was a F-16 fighter pilot. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy, you know, crazy early years with a lot of kids, um, me being the oldest and kind of trying to hold down the fort. I mean, my dad would, would be TDY, um, pretty often and then, uh, had his eventual deployment. Um, but I remember, you know, I have fond memories of being a military child, you know, it was dynamic, got to see a lot of cool places. Um, and it, it always was something that differentiated you, you know, and, and something I think I was always really proud to be associated with. So I think very, for me growing up as a military child, very positive. For sure. Yeah. What kind of experiences was it like kind of having that often move and you mentioned living overseas and then, you know, coming back to the States, were you old enough to remember those kind of transitions? I am. Yeah. I'd say my first memories were in Italy. I was probably three to six. Um, and, and I, I, it's just funny what you remember too, right? I remember, yeah. um, there was this pe this one pizza I'd always get at like our local, you know, Italian restaurant that we'd walk to. It was, uh, it was like a pizza with like hot, like chopped up hot dog on top of it. Um, <laughs> so really sophisticated for being, yeah. for being Italy. Yeah. Interesting that that was my choice. Um, but yeah, I remember that, you know, and I remember, um, going and visiting other countries when we were in Italy, which was really neat, um, especially at that age to kind of be able to see the world and, and to be able to see Europe as well of all places. Um, I think definitely helped kind of shape, um, my, now I, I love travel, you know, and I right. love new experiences. So I, I definitely wouldn't be surprised, um, if those early days helped, you know, inform that, um, openness I have to, to travel and new experiences. So, yeah. And when you're in, you know, a lot of those European countries, those overseas countries, it's so easy to just travel to the next country over. You can just take the train and then go to the next country where like here, you really don't have any options to go to. And it's not convenient at all to get to the next country. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. It's a different world. You know, you can, we went skiing in Austria. That was the first time I went skiing and it, it yeah. seems like a 
big deal, but it's almost like just going to the next state, you know, yeah, and a lot exactly. of times even way less distance than that. <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy to yeah. think about that. And, um, you know, how many military children I've talked to many of them who do get those overseas moves, uh, just go and visit all of these different countries. I remember my fifth grade teacher, um, she was in a DOD school and she was from London. And um, like, I don't believe she was military related or anything. She was just from London. And um, she would always just take the train everywhere and go visit. She's like, okay, well, this weekend we're going to go to Paris or, you know, wherever. And they would just go visit everywhere. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Um, So what was it like then moving back to the States since your earliest memories are from Italy? Mm -hmm. You kind of grew up in that culture. What was it like coming back to America and like that culture change? Yeah, absolutely. So I remember we we joke about it now, um, but my mom, uh, I think she just kind of didn't put me in school for a few months um, (laughs) during our transition. We moved in the spring of, I believe it was my kindergarten year. Um, and so she, we laugh about it now, but I ended up having to do summer school, um, summer school, kindergarten, which sounds kind of, <laughs> um, but I do remember that as we, as we landed in Phoenix, um, initially, and, and I have great memories from Phoenix as well, you know, and, and I think it's, um, I think it was, good for me to kind of have the world travel experience early on. Um, but then to be able to come back and start making friends, you know, and start finding a little bit of, uh, of community. I mean, I wouldn't have known it as community at the time, but, you know, right. we found a, a church and just had people, um, who we started to get to know who, who eventually would be a great support system. Um, so I think I'm, I'm, in retrospect, I'm really grateful um, for the timing of everything coming back to the States and being grounded in, in a great group of people in Phoenix. Yeah. And it's always hard to find, you know, that community feeling uh, to an extent because, you know, military families move around yeah. so often that you you don't have roots anywhere um, and you have to kind of make that community wherever you go. And you never know when someone else is going to be moving or when yeah. you're going to be moving. So it, it always shifts. So true. So yeah. true. What was it like kind of, you know, having all of these moves, having all of this military kind of childhood and being the oldest child out of it all? Good question. Um, <laughs> I think you, I think you just naturally develop um, a desire to, to care for your younger siblings, you know, at least I I think that came kind of naturally to me, um, you know, and, and my little brother, um, who's the next in line underneath me, um, we're really close and I have no doubt that, you know, being the oldest, um, really kind of helped with that because, you know, dad might be gone on a, on a temporary deployment, um, through the air force for a couple months. And, you know, my mom at, at that point, um, was having, having kids, you know, pretty often I'm the oldest of five, like I said. So, you know, it was, uh, there was always an opportunity to help and an opportunity right. to be a part of my younger siblings lives. Um, which I think I, I think it, hopefully it was mutually beneficial, you know, yeah. hopefully we got to, in a way, get to know each other better. Um, 
by being really kind of more that family unit, because I think the military um, compels you to be closer as a family. At least I think you have that opportunity. Um, so that's, that's my hope, even though I wasn't thinking through those things when I was younger, but I think it just happened very organically, you know, as my sisters were babies helping hold them and, and just, you know, you're just a little bit more involved, I think, because of the demands of, of service, you know, on a family. And I think, I, I hope that we all benefited from that as siblings, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, families, you know, everyone has a different family dynamic to begin with, but I think the military kind of forces you to be closer together as a family. It can tear families apart. Like, don't get me wrong. It sure can. But like most military families that I've met are closer together because of the demands of the military and whether your mom or dad served or even both, you know, you're constantly moving for the most part. Um, I didn't move frequently, so like I didn't have that Mm -hmm. part of it, but (laughs) most families are moving frequently, uh, changing locations. And sometimes all you have is your family uh, because you're moving and you don't meet people immediately and things like that. And so it kind of forces that connect, uh, that connection between everyone. And then, you know, you grow up with your siblings as your best friend. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. It's definitely a connection that, you know, most families don't get, Mm. uh, outside of the military. You can see that in a lot of civilian families, um, especially when you separate from the military and um, you see that a lot of siblings aren't as close as you are with your siblings. And then it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's a weird aspect to look at. Right, right. It is. It really is. I think it's, you know, reason for us to to be grateful for that opportunity we've gotten, you know, that the military is has given us, um, my, uh, my, my dad always said, um, talked about shared suffering brings people together. You know, it's one Mm -hmm. of those things that really binds people, not that being a military family is suffering, but just the associated sacrifices and compromises, you know, that you make with, with the demands of, of service, um, just has a way of bringing, bringing everyone together. Like he said, couldn't agree more. Right. And, you know, while military life, you know, from the outside, a lot of people tend to say, oh, you live such an easy lifestyle, you know, just because uh, you get to travel the world and, you know, you get to go to all these different places, meet so many new people, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like looking at all the highlights from it, but it is really hard. Like mm-hmm. it is not, does not take an average child to be a military child. It does not take an average spouse to be a military spouse. Like it's just that way. And, um, you know, you have deployments, you have times where your parents are away, um, and things like that, that you don't even expect. Yeah. So well said. Yeah. Did you experience anything that was hard being a military child? Definitely. Um, yeah, Gracie, you know, I mean, I think that the obvious, um, which would love to get into if, if you want to kind of go down that route, but I, I lost my dad. Um, uh, like I think I mentioned in, in the beginning of the podcast, um, in 2006. And so I was nine. Um, so, you know, I, obviously that was, you know, the, the greatest challenge, um, I think of, of, uh, 
of my military uh, child experience of, of really my experience as a whole. Right. right. Um, and yeah, that presented a lot of challenges, but we talked about family, you know, both personally, as well as with my family dynamic and, and kind of how do you move on from there? You know? Mm-hmm. So at, that, that was absolutely the, you know, the glaring, the glaring challenge for sure. Yeah. So I was nine when my dad got hurt. Mm. We were kind of a similar age. And I remember that day vividly, like really? uh, getting the phone call um, because it was a different situation. And we ended up getting a phone call when we should have gotten a knock at the door. Um, but I remember that day vividly. Do you remember that day? Do you remember any anything about it? Mm. I do. I do. I, I can connect with you on that for sure, Gracie. Um, I remember... Um, how it played out was, uh, I remember it was a school day, um, and we ended up, me and my brother ended up spending the night at one of my friend's houses. I was in fourth grade. Um, and it, I remember thinking it was odd that we were having a sleepover on a school night, you know, and then the next morning, uh, my friend's mom actually dropped him off. Um, but then, uh, continued to take me and my brother back to our house. So even weirder, you know, that it was, a school day and we weren't going to school and we were right. having a sleepover and, um, you know, but I remember she didn't, she didn't say much, um, you know, and, and she kind of just guided us through the front door. And as soon as I walked in our house, I mean, it was probably, you know, every loved one I could, I could imagine, you know, friends and family, um, all kind of gathered in the living room. I mean, family from out of town. Right. And my mom was, was crying on the, on the sofa. Um, and I, I think when you, you talk about vivid memories, I think that's probably one of those that, okay, you walk in, you know, you're nine, you, you haven't been told anything up to this point and you walk into this scene and it's like, where's your mind go? Right. I mean, it's just pretty, pretty visceral. Um, definitely something I'll never forget. Um, and I remember walking over to my mom and she, uh, just kind of gracefully, you know, gave us the news that, Hey, you know, dad is, um, dad's at that point kind of labeled missing, um, due to the kind of the circumstances of what happened with, with his accident. But, uh, but essentially dad, you know, isn't here. Um, and so that, that would for sure be one of those moments that is, uh, is kind of burned in your memory, you know, for sure, for sure. And it's definitely hard, you know, being so young, Mm. And I mean, even though our experiences are so different, it's hard being that age. And I mean, again, being the oldest child too, and saying, you know, this is the situation that we're currently living in. And like, um, for me, my mom got the phone call Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, long story short, we had just gotten home from Sam's club. We were unpacking the, the van we had. Uh, stuff to put in a care package to send to dad. My mom got a phone call. She felt her knees crying. Like I remember exactly where in the house she was. Um, It's like painted picture in my mind. And she felt her knees crying. And then a couple minutes later, she handed me her cell phone because she was on the house phone. She handed me her cell phone. She said, go call Lina, who's her best friend. And she said, tell her something happened to daddy and her and Joey need to get to the house right away. And so I made that phone call. My sister ran after me to my room and like, you know, being 
there and having to give her a hug and say, everything's okay. Like daddy's okay. <laughs> like, you know, even when we didn't know, uh, it was definitely a struggle. And then we, my sister and I didn't know what happened. Um, we just packed up all of our clothes and it was a school night cause it was a Sunday night and we packed up our school stuff, put it in a laundry basket and we were out the house. We were with friends. Um, and we didn't find out until the following Thursday what, uh, what happened. And my mom, she sat us down was like, this is what happened. Um, and she told us. And so that was definitely, you know, a shocker moment of, you know, you see kind of this whole world's turn. I always say, I see the strongest woman that I know break, then, you know, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a situation happening. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And what a, <clears throat> what an unbelievable ask too for, for yeah. a nine-year-old, you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to rise. But I think that you very much did, you know, from what I'm hearing from your story. And I think, uh, it's kind of amazing uh, how kids can can rise, you know, in those moments, yeah. I think almost intuitively. Yeah, so, it's like you kind of know something's happening. And then, you know, I always say it's oldest child instinct, but, you know, you kind of know that you have to step up and you have to, you know, you have to step up to any challenge that is given to you and you have to step up and do it like you know, immediately, like you cannot necessarily wait on it. And it's just being that oldest child, you have that personality and, you know, you have to go with it. Yeah. What was it like kind of then the following days and weeks, you know, after hearing this tragic news um, and kind of trying to carry on or what kind of did your family aspects take after this news? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I remember vividly, um, walking in our backyard, this must've been a few days after what happened. Um, and being in denial, you know, I remember, I remember that, um, again, I wouldn't have known it as denial at the time, but absolutely that being kind of the feeling that I had, um, mostly because kind of as a part of the story goes, my dad, um, his plane crashed. Um, and so he was supporting, uh, some Delta force operators who were on the ground and he was flying over, um, and engaging, uh, enemy who was, who was, uh, attacking the, the good guys on the ground and his plane eventually got so close to the ground, um, that he couldn't pull up, um, after he had kind of made his, uh, his strafing run, utilizing his machine guns to engage the enemy. And so after he crashed, it was actually in, in just such a, such a war torn, um, kind of hot area that the enemy actually got to the crash site before, uh, the good guys did. And so, uh, with that, his body was actually taken from the crash site, um, by the insurgents before, um, we were able to, to get to him. And so at that point, you know, they had enough DNA to, to, you know, totally identify that it was, it was my dad and that he was, you know, killed in action. Um, but a majority of his remains were actually taken on site. And so there was, um, for a few days there before we kind of knew those details, there was a little bit of mystery, um, you know, kind of around what exactly happened and just such a unique situation. And, uh, and I remember how it was kind of framed to me in those early days was, um, 
we're just sort of not totally sure where he's at. You know, we know that he was killed in action, um, but we're just, not, we haven't sort of, um, you know, fully identified kind of what's the details. So I remember being in denial, walking around in the backyard. And I remember thinking, um, you know, going back and forth on whether I thought it was true. I remember that was a really interesting feeling, you know, it was just kind of that rejection of, of the reality of what was going on, um, in my nine year old brain, you know? Um, and so that was a, that was a really visceral feeling that I do remember in those, in those early days. Um, and then after that, Grace, you know, it was, it was busy. I mean, it was a lot of public kind of attention and, um, we had services and we had a, a, a first, um, burial service a few months after where they went ahead and buried, you know, all the remains that, that we had on site. Um, and then kind of, as the story goes, there was actually a search after that for his body. That was a, a 10 year search. So we ended up having two more services, which is, which is kind of unique. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was kind of the, the ensuing months after it happened were, were a little bit of a whirlwind, you know, as I'm sure you can, you can connect with it's, it all just happens fast, you know? Yeah, it's definitely an experience and, you know, every experience is unique and then you, it sounds like it takes it to another level of uniqueness and, you know, I can only imagine, you know, going through that and knowing what you knew and just trying to process it all mm. and to figure out like, you know, what is really going on? Do I believe it? Do I, do I trust it? Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to process through all of that. And, you know, a nine-year-old brain can, can handle yes. quite a bit that you yes. really don't, don't realize. So true. Yeah. And, you know, to an extent it is hard, you know, hearing that your parent was killed in action, but to another extent, it's kind of a good, you know, feeling that, you know, exactly where your parent is and not just, you know, your parent is missing. Yeah. You know, yeah. you actually have a definite answer. Mm. Yes. I think you're really intuitive with that, Gracie. I think that was a, that would, it sounds crazy, but that was kind of a grace yeah. in the moment, right. For all the things that could have happened. Um, that was probably best case and worst case. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned like 10 years later and you had more services. What is it like kind of, you know, having the first service, you know, years ago and kind of closing that door? Was that door even fully closed? Mm. Yes. So we had the first service and um, I actually didn't, me and my siblings didn't know the full story until a few years later, mm -hmm. which I, I, I totally, you know, am, am appreciate and I'm open to my parents' decision, mm -hmm. you know, on that to kind of just keep um, some of the details just disclosed until I think there was a, a level of maturity there, you know, and, and I speak for myself in that, you know, right. but I was told about everything that happened in seventh grade. So my mom got remarried um, a couple of years after my dad passed away to another fighter pilot and he's still my dad and, and he's been a rock, you know, and I'm so grateful for him, but he actually told me in middle school. Um, so a few years after about, Hey, you know, they're actually still looking for the rest of, of your dad. And, you know, there's a, there's, um, search parties going out and, and kind of the whole thing. And, and so, yeah, I think, um, 
I, I wasn't of course aware of all that when we had our first service. And at that point too, I think it was just more simple, right? It's just, I don't have dad, you know, and yeah. that was kind of the, the reality of it. And then the, as the story started to unfold, I think it, you know, got a little bit more complex and, um, and kind of went from there. So I think in the early days, it was just that black and white, you know, lost my dad. Um, and then as we started to, you know, the investigation went on things, things kind of started to develop in some interesting ways. So, yeah, it sure sounds like it. And then what kind of was it like having those second services and being much older mm-hmm. and, you know, having the process of that? Mm, great question. So I do think, so we had three services and I do think that in each one, I was almost at a, I mean, all my siblings were, but I was kind of at a different stage of development, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, it was nine. And then the second one, um, the, a team of special operators, um, went in and actually found, uh, a, a, some of his remains kind of near the crash site. That was seven years later, which is pretty incredible. So we had a second service. Um, I was a sophomore in high school. So you kind of go nine, you know, maybe it was 16, I think. Um, and then we had the third and final funeral when I was 19. Um, so it was my freshman year of college. So it was kind of, you know, I was at kind of a different place in life each time kind of reliving that moment. Um, and I think that it, you know, Gracie, I mean, it absolutely was difficult to kind of, again, relive a moment like that, uh, three times over in a sense. And of course, not necessarily moment of losing him, but just the, the service and what that means. And, and it comes with a lot of grief for sure. Exactly. Exactly. You're exactly right. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, so grateful, um, to the military and, and to the men and women who put their lives on the line to go back out and try to, and try to find the rest of my dad, which they eventually did, mm-hmm. you know, a decade later. And so, you know, that, that brings a level of closure, you know, yeah. I think to the story and, and to me and my family that, I'm really thankful for, and I, I kind of view that as a gift, you know, I mean, I, I don't think we could have ever expected that, um, but they kept looking, you know, and, and it's just kind of a testament, I think, to the resilience of, uh, of our service members, really. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And, you know, with all this tragic, uh, with all the tragedy that's happened in, you know, your story and in my story, uh, you know, something amazing has come out from it. And um, one thing is no greater sacrifice and stepping in. I am in college now and they have been so incredible throughout the whole, the whole journey. Um, And so kind of what has no greater sacrifice done, you know, from the earliest moment, you know, to now that you're working with them, what has that been like? Absolutely. So yeah, no greater sacrifice. Um, I think you, you teed it up so well. I mean, what a great help, what a great resource and advocate for us both. Um, you know, they helped me go to SMU, um, signed it up, was able to play soccer in college, which was always my dream, um, and go to, go to a pretty expensive school, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and in order to be able to do that and, and NGS really just was, you know, I think pivotal, um, and just, and I've heard you talk about it on previous podcasts, Gracie, but of course there's the financial help, which is fundamental, but I think there's that, um, 
feeling that it gives scholars, you know, that like someone is looking out for me. Yeah. It's like someone cares about me. Someone's kind of trying to track me and you just feel, um, you feel like they're just kind of that, uh, playing that supporting cast role in your life, um, through pivotal years of our life too, right. College where you're working through a lot, you know, it's easy to, it's easy to feel, feel alone sometimes, especially with the uniqueness of our story. And so I think NGS, it really fulfilled both of those, you know, it helped me go to school. Um, but you know, through Rebecca, through the team's support and advocacy, it also just gave me a little bit of peace of mind. I think that I had, that I did have support, you know? Um, and then, yeah, transitioning, you know, now I'm working for NGS. Um, so I think it's just such a, such a cool kind of full circle thing, um, you know, where I get to go back and, and now serve and, and, and try to further NGS's, um, NGS's mission, you know, and be able to have conversations like this and, and get to know you, Gracie, and get to know, you know, other scholars and, we all, uh, we kind of have that common bond, you know, of, of loss through the military in some fashion. And I just think it's a real opportunity, um, that I see for myself to be able to integrate my experiences into being the best I can be for the NGS community. So it's fun. I'm really, I'm really thankful. Yeah. NGS has, you know, stepped up in so many ways and, you know, while I don't, you know, use it as much for funding, it's, the mentor, the, the support behind, um, everyone. And, you know, for me, for the podcast, for, uh, you know, I changed my mind so many times of what I want to do and, you know, everyone's just like so supportive and, you know, Rebecca is just, you know, incredible. You know, I can't say enough good things about her. Um, but you know, she's just, she's always kind of gone with the flow and she's like, okay, well, this is what you want to do now. Okay. Here's how you can get there. And then it's like, okay, a month later, I'm like, okay, I've changed my mind. (laughs) Like, you know, kind of thing. Um, and you know, it's always just, everyone is so supportive. And so, uh, you know, just there for the scholars and not just, uh, from my experience, but I've heard it from so many others as well. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Yeah, it's definitely a mission that, you know, I think Rebecca says it all the time. It's a club that you never wish to be a part of. Mm. And um, while I'm so grateful for everyone, we would have never, if we had, if we could have picked our road, like we would not have picked this road that we're on now. Um, But just the incredible things that come out of it and um, everyone who donates and um, supports NGS is just incredible because, you know, it, I don't like to like take things. I don't like to be on the spotlight or anything, but, um, it's definitely something that I'm so grateful for. And that, you know, takes a situation that is definitely a challenge and, um, kind of makes it a blessing and, um, that we're able to just go to college without having to worry about that, that financial burden. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, just like what you said, Gracie, NGS, it, um, I think with our experiences, Gracie, we have an opportunity personally, you know, 
and in our family units to to try to make something out of out of what's happened. I think we have that opportunity, you know, is there for us to try to heal and to try to integrate our experiences into our lives and to grow and and try to choose that path, right? And, and it's mm-hmm. so cool that um, organizations like like NGS, you know, and they kind of they kind of um, lock arms with you. I think yeah. in that effort and they reflect that same spirit of, uh, Hey, this is difficult. This is really hard and abnormal. Um, but we see you and we hear you and we want to just, we want to be, uh, almost an extension of you, you know, in, in, in effort to support you and, and, and make something out of what's happened. Right. I, th- yeah. I think that's my interpretation also of what NGS is doing on a, on a large scale, you know? Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'd be without NGS, like honestly. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to do this and to be on the podcast. I truly appreciate it and getting to know your your story a little more and um, for all you're doing with NGS. Absolutely, Gracie. It was a treat and I'm so grateful to be able to share this space with you and um You're doing awesome. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Grace of Military Child podcast. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to follow, like, share, subscribe, review, and comment. You can also follow us at Grace of a Military Child podcast on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more podcast-related content. If you or someone you know is a military child who would like to be on the podcast, please send us a message to one of our social media platforms, or you can send an email to grace.of.a.military.child at gmail.com. Tune in next Thursday to hear another incredible journey.